But go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We've only got uh, two sections left in 1 Samuel before we start our series on 2 Corinthians. If you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to uh, start reading ahead in 2 Corinthians. That way, um, you know, everything... Yeah, he's going to start right now. Um, one of the reasons I encourage you to read ahead is because as we teach, there's a context, a broader context to each passage. And so if you understand, at least have some idea of where the book is going, it helps to see each one of the passages you know, that we study together. So I would encourage you, if you haven't done so already, um, just start reading in 2 Corinthians. Again, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. This is a rather interesting passage today because we saw last week David kind of got a little weary and and did some things, kind of took some things into his own hands. Not necessarily sin, but um, just where it appears like he maybe didn't follow the normal pattern of his life, which was to consult God. Today we're going to see David actually get to a breaking point. And uh, there's a rather interesting... um, turn of events that happens because of what he did last week. Um, but go ahead and, and turn there with me, and we'll walk our way through this. First Samuel chapter 30. I'm going to read the first six verses. It says this, Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, or the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Kemalite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. We're going to go ahead and just stop there briefly. We've seen David actually exhibit a tremendous amount of courage in this uh, book. You remember his attack on um, Goliath. This amazing courage and strength that we saw in David. If you remember, um, the armies of Israel were were all just kind of standing back. They're all afraid to go out and face this nine foot tall giant. And here David is, probably a guy about my height, walks up and you know questions them, and he decides to go ahead and go out and attack. And we see this amazing confidence and strength in David because he trusted the Lord. But we've also seen David express dismay and frustration as well. Um, do you remember when? He went up to Saul or went up to um, Saul's son Jonathan in First Samuel chapter twenty. David was sort of at his wit's end. He says, "What have I done? What's my iniquity? What's my sin before your father that he's seeking my life?" We also saw David when he finally escaped up to the Philistines said this in First Samuel twenty-seven. I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair and search for me no more. So he ran off and escaped the land of Israel. So we've seen David on sort of both of these these sides of him where he shows us tremendous strength and courage and resiliency. 
But then we also see this other side where he faced um, difficult times or times where he was a little bit dismayed, a little bit frustrated. Saul had continued to pursue him. We know of at least 15 attempts on David's life. So we see sort of both sides of this. And we see last week where David, I believe, kind of got to that point where he was just weary, he was just tired of it, and um, he did something that he normally didn't do, which was he, he went off and did something on his own behalf, if you will, without consulting the Lord. We had seen this pattern with David where he consulted the Lord before making these big decisions, and he didn't do that last week. And I, I suspect that it was maybe because he was a little bit tired, a little bit weary, but he may have also just sort of relied on his own abilities. He was a good military man, and he just looked at the, you know, looked at it, evaluated the situation, and said, "This, this is a good choice. I'm just going to run up to the Philistines now. I can trick them, and you know, I've got this plan that I'm going to put in place here, and Saul will stop." And so he sort of took things into his own hands, and he doesn't consult the Lord. We're going to see some consequences. We saw some consequences of that we're going to see them today. But things actually, in some respects, started to look a little up for David because he was safe from Saul. Saul was not going to pursue him with the Philistines anymore. He was able to live in somewhat uh, safe circumstances. His family was protected. So, in some respects, things looked a little bit better for David. He was no longer on the run from Saul. Um, He was able to conduct raids in the south and do what he was supposed to do, which is protect Israel from their enemies. And so he's doing all of that, and things looked pretty good. But just about the time that um, everything looks okay, they take an unexpected turn. You remember what happened with David. The, um, The king of the Philistines had developed so much confidence in David because David was raiding Israel's enemies in the south, but telling the king he was basically attacking the Philistines' enemies, and he was giving the spoils to the king. And so the king of the Philistines thought David was on his side. And so the king basically not just invites David, but demands that David now go on the major raid, the major offensive that they had put together against Israel. And so David finds himself in this precarious situation, because if he doesn't do it, then immediately he's going to be questioned, and now his life's in danger, and his family's lives are in danger. So he decides to go along with it. Now, we don't know in the end what David's ultimate plan was, but we have to suspect that he would never have gone through with it. But he agrees to go along on this raid, but some of the Philistine lords still were suspect of David. And so fortunately, for David's sake, they protest, and they convince the king to send David back home. But what we discover, discovered during that time is what we see here today, which is that the Amalekites, while David is gone with him and his men, he left Ziklag, his home city, undefended. And the Amalekites, enemies of the Jews, recognized that, saw that, and they took advantage of it. And they went and they literally ransacked the city. It says they totally destroyed it. They burned it with fire. Then they took the women, the children, Captive, And it says they didn't kill any of them, but they took them captive. And one of the things we have to be sort of conscious of here is this isn't just sort of taking the women away and the daughters away. Um, The Amalekites, as Canaanites, were brutal. These women and children weren't probably just taken away. They were enslaved and likely abused. I'll leave it at that. So this was a terrible, wicked circumstance and partly because David decided to act on his own, in his own thinking and will, what he thought was best, and it got him into trouble, and ended up found himself in a precarious situation where he had to go along with the, the Philistine army and left the city undefended.
And as a result, the city gets attacked, the women and children are taken away. So David arrives, he discovers this, and for the first time, I think in the book, we actually see David at an absolute breaking point. Last week, there was some despair because he's like, what else am I going to do? But we didn't see him do what he's going to do today. If you look at verse 4, it says that David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. In other words, they cried until they were totally, completely exhausted and couldn't cry anymore. Have any of you guys ever been in that place? Have you ever been in a place where you've wept to the point where you couldn't even cry anymore? There weren't any more tears? It's like the water ran out. That's where David was at and his men. It says in verse 6 that David was greatly distressed also because the people spoke of stoning him. These were people that were on David's side. So David is at this point where he he knows his wives and his children have been taken away. He, He knows likely what they're now facing with the torture and the abuse. But not only that, the very men that are supposed to be on his side are now against him as well, but not just his own men, but all the men, not just the soldiers. They all want to stone him. They lost their faith and trust and confidence in him, probably because what David did wasn't all that bright. It wasn't all that wise. Again, he put himself in a kind of a precarious situation. So David here is at the end of his rope. I think life in general does this to us sometimes, doesn't it? We find ourselves where maybe we get a little bit tired. We're, we're sick of maybe what's going on around us. and You know, we have it pretty good here in the United States, I think, for the most part. But that doesn't mean that we don't face deeply troubling emotional times. You know, I've had some of my own life where I found myself at that breaking point where I just felt like crying out to the Lord and did. I remember one particular time where... Um, I had called uh, Amy from, I was at a gas pump pumping gas, and I called Amy, my wife, and I said, I, I can't take this anymore. I, I, can't, I can't stand this. And it was having to do with um, some issues I was having with my back where I was thinking I was going to probably have to go on disability and some other things, and literally couldn't, I, I couldn't sleep at night because I couldn't, there was pain when I slept, there was pain when I would walk, there was pain when I, and this went on for a couple of years. And I remember calling Amy from a gas pump, and, and my, my back was just, killing me, I was having trouble standing there, and I just wept. It's like, I can't take this anymore. I just, I absolutely cannot take this anymore. So sometimes life gets that way, and David found himself at that point here where just wept until he couldn't do it anymore. But then we see him kind of return to an old habit. If you look at 6b, the second half of 6b, it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. There are nine words there. Nine very simple words. And I want to highlight these. First one is this. The first phrase, strengthened himself. I think that's critical. The word strengthened there is simply the word that means just that, to make oneself strong, to to harden something. Now what's interesting about this, and, and most of your translations do a good job of translating this, The Hebrew language has stems. It's kind of like a giant puzzle. There are 12 stems, and what that basically means is this. You take a word, and then you can add beginnings and endings to that word that tell you specifically 
how to translate that. And they get down to these little tiny nuances. And the, the, the stem that's used here is a reflective stem. And the way that it's translated here is a good way to translate it. He strengthened himself. It means that he took initiative to strengthen himself, to do the strengthening. Now, we know ultimately that, that he, it says here that he's strengthening himself in the Lord. We'll get to that in a second. But this word implies that David is taking the initiative to do it. He isn't waiting to be strengthened, but he's strengthening himself. Okay, so there's, there's some initiative there. He doesn't, he doesn't just wait. So it makes him an active party in this. And again, that's all wrapped up in this in the stem that's used here for this Hebrew word. The author is trying to make it clear that David took initiative. He was an active party in this. He did something when he was weary. The second phrase is, in the Lord. And I think that's critical as well. We can't overlook that. Because David didn't just pull himself up by his bootstraps. He didn't just get himself involved with positive thoughts or positive thinking. He didn't search out his own strength. He didn't. It's what's funny here is he didn't necessarily go to his friends either. It says that he strengthened himself in the Lord. There's one place that David thought he could find strength. Finally, what's funny is the contrast between this and last week. David, as he's seeking safety and help last week, looked to the Philistines. This week, we find David looking back to the Lord. So I think, again, that phrase in the Lord is critical as well. I wonder sometimes about myself and others where I look for strength. And, um, you know, oftentimes when we uh, have questions, we ask friends and family and others, and the last place we turn to is the Lord. Sometimes it's that way with um, when we're having a difficult time, we reach out to friends and family, and they're there for a reason. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but oftentimes the Lord is the last place we go. And it should be the first. The last phrase I want to just touch on here is two words, His God. You know, it's funny, um, I always find it interesting when I talk to folks who talk maybe like they're saved, but becomes pretty clear that maybe they're not when they and you can tell that oftentimes when they talk about their religion you know or they talk about um, their faith as if it's um, some nebulous concept you know I find faith in my religion I find faith in my church I find really it's supposed to be in God and I think the author deliberately does that here he tells us that David was strengthened or strengthened himself in the Lord in his God. That's where he sought it out. David didn't search it out in the temple. He didn't search it out in the law. He sought it out specifically in the Lord. I think too sometimes that as important as the word is to us, um, when we go to the scriptures, we ought to be looking for the Lord, not just looking at the scriptures. Does that make sense? And I think that's what we find here with David too. I think the author is trying to tell us that David's strengthening would be found not just in the Lord, but in the Lord, his God, this personal relationship. And I think that's the, the point that the author is trying to stress here, is that David had a personal relationship, because it was in his God, not in Yahweh, but in his God. And the his there, I think, is really important. And so the same thing is true for us, I believe, that what where we find our strength is not just in the Lord, but in the Lord, our God. The fact that we have a personal relationship with him, we can call him ours, 
Just like the author here could call God his when he came to David. So it's not just enough to seek strength and encouragement through things like prayer or reading the Bible. Um, We're to find our strength in Christ specifically in that personal relationship. You know, that's one of the issues I have with the whole spiritual formation movement is um, it puts the emphasis on the spiritual practices that we're supposed to engage in these spiritual practices because there's some type of of, um, benefit in those practices that are designed to help us overcome our flesh or sinfulness and other things. And it puts the emphasis on those things instead of on the relationship with Christ specifically. And that's really what we find here is that David strengthened himself in the Lord, this personal God that he knew and had a relationship with. Now the one thing we see in this pattern, or the one thing we don't really see in this passage is the author doesn't tell us exactly how David did that. It just leaves it pretty much at that, that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Can you think of a place that maybe we could turn that would tell us how David did this? Anybody want to venture a guess? Yeah, the Psalms. The Psalms are f- absolutely filled with instruction, in other words, what David did to strengthen him. I want you to turn just to one. Psalm chapter 86. Now, we don't necessarily have this, do these six things to strengthen yourself in the Lord. So I don't want to preach it that way either. But what we do see is time after time after time, David having to strengthen himself in the Lord. And so we see the examples of what David did to strengthen himself in the Lord. And I think this is one of the best. I'm going to just go through these. I'm going to read it first, and then we're going to go through and pull out some principles. And so when I pull out those principles, you'll see we're going to jump around from the verses because David repeats some things at different sections. So let me go ahead and just read Psalm chapter 86. David says this, Incline your ear... O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds, you alone are God. Teach me your ways, or teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all of my heart, and will glorify your name forever, for the loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of shale. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your servant, or grant your strength to your servant, and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, O Lord, have helped me 
and comforted me. Let's look at some of the principles that we see here. One of the first here is that David calls out to the Lord in prayer and he actually expects him to answer. So one of the first things we see for David to strengthen himself required that he actually call out to the Lord and expects him to answer. Isn't that, I mean, that's just sort of a simple principle that you have to ask, you have to go. If you want to be strengthened in the Lord, then you call out to him. David says in verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. He says in verse 3, For you I cry all day long. Verse 6, he says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. That's in verse 6. Verse 7, he says, In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. Did you see the number of times David reflects the thought that God will answer him if he calls out to him? So David approaches the Lord with the expectation. I believe that as David was looking at Ziklag and seeing the smoke rise up from the ashes and thinking about his family, as he got down to his knees and wept, that one of the first things he did was he turned to the Lord and began to call out to Him. But probably with an expectation that the Lord would actually answer his need at that moment. So the first thing we see here is David took the initiative to call on the Lord in prayer and actually expected Him to answer. Another thing we see here is that he actually lays out his need. That's another very simple thought. He simply tells the Lord what he needs. Look at verse 11. He says, For I'm afflicted and needy. So he goes to the Lord and he says, Look, I have needs here, Lord. Verse 14, he spells it out in this case. Arrogant men have risen up against me and a band of violent men have sought my life. So David actually lays out what his needs are. A little bit later, he actually asks the Lord outright. He says, give me your strength. That's what I need. So not only does he call out and expect God to answer, but he lays out his needs. He's specific about them. Third principle we might see here is that he actually asks the Lord for his help and his strength. We've already alluded to one of those. But notice what he says in verse 2. He says, Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Verse 4, he says, Make glad the soul of your servant. There he's asking for emotional release. He's asking the Lord to, to bring him gladness, to take away the sorrow. Verse 16, he says, O grant your strength to your servant. So he actually comes right out and asks the Lord, Give me your strength. Another principle, he asks the Lord for his grace and his mercy. Verse 3, he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. That word gracious is one we kind of throw around, but it's an important one. It's a huge theological term for us because grace is unmerited favor. It's something you don't deserve. And so David is basically saying here, Lord, I, I don't deserve anything. But he asks for it anyway. He asks for God's grace. Reflects on this. He says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious in verse 15. He asks him again to be gracious in verse 16 where he says, Turn to me and be gracious to me. So he asks God for his grace. He asks him for what he doesn't deserve. You know, it's, it's interesting because within charismatic circles, oftentimes if, if you look at this concept of being strengthened in the Lord many of them, I'm talking about the authors and the preachers and that, as you listen to them, approach this from the standpoint of, you owe it to me, Lord. 
You owe me this as your child. And that's not at all the way David approaches it. He's asking for God's grace, something he does not deserve. It's totally the opposite. We don't go to the Lord and demand anything. We ask him for his grace. And so here David is, as he's looking at again the smoldering ashes of the city, he's asking God for his grace and his mercy as he's collapsed on the floor in a pool of his own tears. Another thing he does is he reminds himself of a character of God, a character trait. And that character trait is the Lord's loyalty. We've mentioned this word hesed. Oftentimes it's a a Hebrew word. Um, It means covenant loyalty. It's this idea that God is faithful to the covenant that he had created between him and his people. It's the reason why God is faithful to us, the reason why we do not have to fear losing our salvation. It's because it's wrapped up in God's loving kindness, his covenant loyalty to us. And so David actually reflects upon that at this point. Look in verse 5, it says, You are abundant in loving kindness. That's that word. Um, Covenant loyalty. You are abundant in your loving kindness or your covenant loyalty to all who call upon you. He repeats that in verse 13. He says, your loving kindness, your covenant loyalty toward me is great. He says in verse 15, you are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, loyalty, and truth. So David, as he's reflecting on this, he's just reminding himself, God is loyal. God is loyal. God is loyal. You know, do you remember the story of Paul and Silas, when they were in prison. Anybody remember that story? They basically create some some difficulty for some artisans when they go into a city and they begin to preach the gospel. And because of that, um, they arrest Paul and Silas and they throw them into prison. And we find this rather interesting thing that happens with them. Anybody remember what they did? They started singing hymns, it says. Now, what's the purpose of, of hymns? They were very similar then as they are to us today. Now, if we take hymns and we pull them out and we take, say, praise and worship and put it over here. Emphasis on praise and worship is generally much more the um, praising the Lord and, and it's done from an emotional perspective and, and I think there's value in that. Um, you know, Some of the praise and worship stuff that gets out there is more like love songs to Jesus, which are a little bit iffy to me. Um, but for the most part, the, the, the praise and worship songs, are just, they're an emotional response, us singing back to the Lord. Okay, And again, I think there's value in a lot of that. Hymns, on the other hand, if you look at the history of hymns, anybody know what the primary purpose of that is? They were ultimately designed to praise God, but there was theology in them. They were to teach. They reflected on God's character and who He is and His traits. And so when you look at Paul and Silas singing here, it is likely that what they were doing was reflecting on what they understood about God. They were singing hymns, reflecting on God's character, and one of those characters likely was God's loyalty and faithfulness to them. And so we find them singing hymns to the Lord. It's exactly, I think, what... David has in mind here, he might not have been singing hymns here, but he's thinking through God's character traits. What he understood about God. His loving kindness, his faithfulness, and his loyalty, and his truth to them. Another thing we see David doing to strengthen himself is that he remembered God's goodness to him. In other words, past acts. 
Verse 5a says, For you, O Lord, are good. Good is an action word. He's referring to what God has done. Verse 8, it says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. He says in verse 10, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Verse 17, he says, Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. That's past tense. So what David does here is he not just reflects on God's covenant loyalty, but the fact that God had acted on his behalf and had done good works for him in the past. We have great examples of that. The, the, the biggest one is probably Goliath. David was convinced that the Lord would deliver him from Goliath because of who the Lord was, and that's exactly what he did. Plus, we see a number of other episodes where David consulted with the Lord, the Lord gave him instructions, David went out and did what the Lord said, and the Lord accomplished exactly what he wanted to accomplish. And so what David does is he reflects here on what God had done for him in the past. That's a critical concept for us. I've mentioned this a number of times. James, when he teaches us to go through trials, uses some very specific language. He says that we are supposed to consider it joy when we face trials. But he tells us why. And he says, because you know. Most translations simply translate that as knowing, but it's a participle. And it describes something. And what he's, a better way for us to understand that is, we're supposed to consider it joy because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And that word know there is the Greek word for experiential knowledge. Not head knowledge, but experience. So another way to translate that, if we were to translate that out with the full nuance is, because you know by your experience with the Lord, these trials are designed to build endurance in your faith. So James does the same thing. When we go through trials, he tells us, reflect, look back. Through your experience with the Lord, you will see that what the Lord does with trials is He builds endurance in your life. And James goes on to say that you might be complete, mature. And so that's exactly what David does. So one of the things David does to strengthen himself in the Lord is he looks back on the fact that God is good and has been good to him and has done good things for him. So as he's looking again at these ashes... I can almost imagine David thinking, and the Lord will do it again. The result of this, the end of this will ultimately be good because of what God has done in the past. Another principle, he was thankful. Seems odd at a time like this, doesn't it? Verse 12, he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all of my heart, and will glorify your name forever. One of the phrases I hate is when I hear people say, it's okay to be angry with God. I'm not saying we're not tempted. I'm not saying I've never had a time in my life where I wasn't angry about something. But to be angry at God means we don't understand. We're accusing God of doing something wrong. It's not okay to be angry with God. We're told to give thanks in all things. We're not told to be happy about all things. But we're to give thanks. 
And here we find David looking at his wives and children being taken away into captivity, and yet there's an element of thankfulness there. Do I fully understand that? No. Am I saying it's easy? No. But David, it says, gave thanks to the Lord. But he did it with all of his heart. And he said he would glorify the Lord. Again, I can't say that I can completely wrap my head around that. But we're called to that. One of the ways that we strengthen ourselves in the Lord is we develop a thankful heart, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the difficulty. Um, I'll bring up the Wittens. Um, do you think it was <coughs> excuse me, easy for the Wittens to have a thankful heart over seeing their son diagnosed with cancer? Do you think that's easy? But do we see that reflected in them? Am I the only one? The Wittens have been an amazing example of praise and thankfulness through this difficult, trying time. But again, I can't imagine it was easy to have a thankful heart. But yet that's what they've expressed. David is in the same situation here. The last principle I'll pull out from here is found in verse 11. He asked the Lord to teach him and he committed himself to obey. If you want to be strengthened in the Lord, you have to be committed to the Lord teaching you and you have to be committed to doing what he says. David says in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now you notice there, the word way is singular. Did you get get that? David isn't just saying, well, teach me the right things to do as much as teach me how to live. Teach me your way. Not ways, but your way. And he says, and I will walk in truth. So David, in order to be strengthened, understood that he had to be willing to be taught by the Lord, probably specifically through that circumstance, but also to be willing to then walk in obedience. Oftentimes we want to be taught, but don't want to walk. (laughs) That's a problem. There was the gentleman that led me to Christ, I think I've even shared this story, his name is Bob Kegel. And I I, I think I've told the story a number of times, maybe you're bored by now with it, but one of the things that ultimately led me to Christ was I had seen in Bob this love for the Lord, but no matter what the circumstances, he always exuded thankfulness and praise. And I knew that he had some some finals coming up, and um, I knew he was struggling academically. He wanted to be a teacher. And I knew that he was struggling, struggling academically because he had shared that. And um, he had been, I'll say, pestering me for months to come to a Campus Crusade meeting and he had tried to share the gospel and I just shut him down all the time. I'm like, look, I don't want to hear about your Jesus. You know, I was Catholic. I thought everything was cool. Even though I would go out at night and walk and I would pray because I felt a little bit lost. You know, I was I was hurting emotionally and I was lost. I was praying to God. It's the only thing I knew how to do. And so I'm praying, asking God for help. But at the same token, here he's provided Bob to offer me help and I'm saying, don't talk to me about that Jesus guy. So anyway, um, Bob had, had kind of learned some things about me and he had kind of backed off a little bit and tried to become my friend and shared some things. But um, I just remember he had shared with me that he was you know, having a hard time 
And I remember him leaving the dorm saying, hey, look, i got to go take these tests. I'm not feeling good about it. If I don't pass these tests, man, I don't graduate and I'm done. I don't get to be a teacher. Um, I'll be stuck in school again, you know. And So I, he even asked me to pray for him, which I thought was strange because, you know, I wasn't a Christian. Um, so it's funny because I got back, uh, after my classes were done, I got back to the dorm and I saw him come back from classes. And he walked past my dorm room and I just kind of saw him walk past. I said, hey, how'd you do? And he goes, eh, it wasn't good. I went, well, so I poked my head out the door and I said, what? And he goes, I think I failed. So I, re- I really do, I, I think I failed. And you could tell he wasn't all that interested in talking. So I let him go and he walked into his room. And I'm just sitting in my room and I'm thinking, man, I feel bad for the guy, you know. And so I thought, I'll just go down and see if I can cheer him up, talk to him. <laughs> walk out of my dorm room, I walk out and I hear him singing. Didn't have a great voice, but he could play guitar. And I hear him just jamming on his guitar. And I think I told you he taught me to play guitar. Um, he taught me some praise and worship songs but didn't tell me the words. <laughs> so anyway, um, I was familiar with some of that and I, you know, we had played a couple of times. So anyway, I, I thought, oh, interesting. So I go down the hall and I hear him jamming on his guitar, singing like crazy. And I, as I walked across the threshold, I kind of was caught because he was in his room in his underwear. Just his plain white type. And he's just jamming and just singing like crazy. And I kind of stood there at the doorway, and I don't know if I should just leave because now I'm a little embarrassing, this guy in his underwear, or if I should sit and just kind of watch and wonder what in the heck's going on. So I kind of stood there for a second, and I, he kind of noticed me, and he was like, hey! I'm like, so, uh, didn't go well, huh? And he's like, no, it didn't go well at all. I said, you think you failed? He goes, yeah, I think I, I think I failed. And at that moment, I'm looking at this guy, and I'm thinking, wow, this guy is praising this Jesus that he wants to tell me about. He may have just very well flunked his finals. And yet, this guy has got a smile on his face. He's praising Jesus with his guitar. So I literally walked in his room and I said, put some clothes on. Um, You've been wanting to tell me about Jesus. Why don't you tell me about Jesus? So he did. He got dressed, thankfully. Pulled out of four spiritual laws. And sat down and shared the gospel with me. And it was that night that I went home and got saved. Bob exuded... Thankfulness. Now, one of the reasons maybe he came to Christ when he was in a car accident where all six of the other guys in the car with him were killed. And he was trapped in the vehicle for hours as they were trying to pull the car apart to get him out. And so he had reason to be thankful. And that was something that Bob always exuded no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the difficulty. And ultimately, it's what led me to Christ. I don't know that I would have asked him to do that had I not seen that in him. So again, one of the principles that one of the principles that um, David followed was this concept of thankfulness. So let's go ahead, move on. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah forty one ten. It says this: "Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious about." Anything, for I am your God, I will strengthen you and I will surely help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That was a promise that God made to Israel. It's a promise that he makes to us. That he'll strengthen us. But you notice that with David, he had to take some initiative. He had to reach out. And there are things that David did to be strengthened in the Lord. We're told the Lord will strengthen us, and so in some respects it's passive. But there's an expectation that we become an active part in that. And that's exactly what we see with David. So what happened? Well, David then becomes strengthened in the Lord, and then he actually reflects 
this new renewed strength and encouragement in the next two events that happen. And we're just going to briefly summarize these. We won't spend a lot of time on them. But there's two things now that actually happen where we see David um, express this strength and encouragement. The first one is that he goes on and he attacks the Amalekites. So I want you to look at verses uh, 7 through 20. I'm going to read them so we at least do that, but we won't spend a lot of time digesting them. But uh, Verse 7. Then David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. That's generally, it was something the priest wore and it was used to help consult the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. He goes back to his practice. David inquired of the Lord saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue and you will surely overtake them and you will surely rescue all. So David didn't even wait for a second time. Remember once before David had asked twice, just to make sure, this time he doesn't even wait. He got his answer from the Lord. So David went, he and 600 men who were with him, and came and came to the brook of Bezor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook remained behind. What basically happens is David had 600 fighting men. As he takes off, they get to this brook, and as they cross, he leaves 200 men behind. This time, <laughs> to probably watch at least their stuff that's left. The men, it says, are too exhausted. Remember, they had been on this long march with the Philistines, and they had marched back to Ziklag. Plus, they were exhausted from weeping. So there were 200 men that were just too exhausted to go on and fight. So David leaves them behind to guard their stuff, what's left. And then David and the other 400 men move on. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. Verse 12. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of the Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev goes on, he basically talks about um, destroying the city of Ziklag. Verse 15, Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by, my, by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my masters, and I will bring you down to this band. When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the, hand, or from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. These are the Amalekites they are celebrating. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of their livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. So David was able to attack the Amalekites and recover not just everything that had been taken from Ziklag, but got to take all of the stuff of the Amalekites too. And it says here that that became his spoil. We're going to see here what he does with that in a minute. But the first thing that we see, the first act, is David goes on in the strength of the Lord. Consults him again, goes back to his habit of consulting the Lord. When the Lord says, yes, go ahead and do it, David doesn't even hesitate. He just goes off. So he goes from, from basically weeping to the point of exhaustion to now going off and attacking the people that had just destroyed his city and taken his wife and children. We see David back strengthened in the Lord now. Um, 
the Amalekites were a brutal, brutal people. There were likely um, a much larger army here than what David had, but that didn't seem to matter because David's going forward now in the strength of the Lord. The second event that we see here is a little bit odd in that um, at first thought you might kind of question why this relates, but David actually goes on and he shares the spoils as a reflection of God's goodness to them. One of the things that reflects the strength of the Lord that David has is he recognizes that the spoils are not his. He recognizes that God had given him the victory over the Malachites. And so part of being strengthened in the Lord then is to live in obedience. Remember he said, teach me and I'll obey. Well, David recognizes something here. So look what happens. If you look at verses 21 and following, it says, When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook um, Bezor, and they went out to meet David and meet the people with whom they were, David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except to every man, his wife, and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. So basically what happens is, remember these 200 men left behind? The 400 men go with David. So they ransack the Amalekites. They come back with all the spoil. And so then the men, these 200 men, come out and greet them. Celebrate with them. But some wicked men from the 400 say, no, these dudes aren't getting squat. We'll give them their wives back, we'll give them their kids back, but they don't get any of the spoil because they didn't go with us. Look at David's response. Verse 23, Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered us into our hands the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so his share shall be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. I think it's a reflection of David's obedience to the Lord. He basically says, this isn't fair, guys. Okay? No, they're just as much a part of us as we are. And so they should partake of the spoils as well. And he does it because he says here it was the Lord that had brought the victory. He goes on. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel and to those who were in Ryan. He basically lists the cities here, all the way down through the rest of that. What basically David does here is he not only gives the soldiers part of the spoil, but he shares it among the elders of Israel. All as a sign of God's victory. This is humility. It's compassion. Um, I think it's an evidence of what the Lord did for David here in strengthening him. Partially because to be strengthened in the Lord implies that you'll reflect the Lord. And that's exactly what we see here in David. As we wrap this up, I think it's important for us to keep something in mind here. The way the author arranged the text here, I think there's a reason why he tells this story the way he does and does it after explaining to us that David had gone off with the army of the Philistines. And it's because I think the author was trying to demonstrate for us that part of the reason David was in the place that he was at was because he apparently took things kind of into his own hands, relied on his own strength, forgot to consult the Lord, and he found himself in that difficult spot. And so that sets up a contrast for what we see here today, 
where David returns to his former practice. He, and so the author uses that contrast. And I think it kind of reflects our life in general, doesn't it? How many of you are like me where you know, you've been saved for a while and you kind of get used to your relationship with Christ and you almost go on autopilot and you, maybe you don't pray for all the things that you should or maybe you don't rely on the Lord as much as you really should. And we kind of see that, I think, contrast set up here. And in David's case, I think it led him to that point of weariness and in some respects to the breaking point. And so then he finds himself sort of um, having to be reminded, I need to go back to the Lord. I need to go back to Him and be strengthened in Him. And it's in Him that I can find the strength that I need to then go on and do what the Lord needs me to do. And so I think it's a good, a good example for us of a number of things. One is um, the danger of kind of getting stuck on autopilot and just sort of, you know, doing things that we, need, you know, that, that we just think we need to do. You know, it's, it's like with decisions for almost anything. If we stop and make decisions regarding our family, we don't stop to pray about it first and consult the Lord, there's always a danger that maybe our thinking isn't right. You know? Um, and we see that reflected in David. Maybe it wasn't the best decision to go up to the Philistines as he did. The Lord probably would have protected David even if he didn't go up to the land of the Philistines. In fact, he had done it at least 15 times before that. And David went off to the Philistines expecting relief which he got from Saul but look what else then happened so he really ultimately didn't get the rest he needed he still faced difficulty and trouble and so the Lord brings him back and David once again has to strengthen himself in the Lord and goes back to the proper practice of consulting the Lord and so again I think that's a good lesson for us as well and I know for me personally I think I've told you this before there's times where if I get hit with something or I'm struggling with something oftentimes I'm three or four days in and I go oh I haven't been praying about this you think I get it after 30 years of being saved right but I just you fall into these traps you know you just fall into living life as a Christian and I don't realize, no, I need to stop and pray. I need to stop and think. I need to stop and consult the Lord. Or, you know, I need the Lord's strength to do this, not my own strength today. And that means that I have to ask Him rather than just presume that He will.